This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. So hi, Graham Scott's my name and I just wanted to welcome you to the first of a series of podcasts that I'm doing on the illusion of the rational human being. I've been practicing as an organizational psychologist for well over 30 years now. And during that time, I've been lecturing, consulting, training, speaking, coaching. And I've come to one startling, you might say, conclusion about humans, is that we are not a rational being. We are more of a rationalizing being. And what that means is that we act irrationally, and then more often than not, we rationalize that irrationality, if that makes sense. I'll put that a little bit together uh, as we move through. Rationalisation is actually one of the many defence mechanisms that was proposed by Anna Freud that we use as a protective device. It involves a thoughtful distortion of the facts to make something less threatening and often on a fairly conscious level when we provide ourselves with excuses. So that's the whole notion of irrationality. And it was interesting, while I was researching, I looked at a lot of literature and I thought, oh, I think people are changing. Are they changing? And I did some more research and had some discussions with a variety of people and came to the conclusion that, no, we're not changing. And it's interesting when I look back also, in my research, I came across a quote by Mark Twain that was probably about 150 years ago. Mark Twain actually said, man is the reasoning animal, such is the claim. I think it's open to dispute. Indeed, my experience has proven to me that he is an unreasonable animal. In truth, man is incurably foolish. Simple things which other animals learn easily, he is incapable of learning. And so I suppose I thought, well, how long have we been an irrational being? And what is rationality? I guess a broad definition is that rationality is being guided on reason or we make decisions based on reason and logic. Irrationality, of course, is the converse. So what I'm wanting to do in this series of uh, podcasts and videos is to introduce and question if we can know, appreciate and understand the roots of our irrationality. Can we change? Is it possible for us to actually change? Is it possible for us to be different? Do we need to be different? If you've ever really thought about rationality or being rational, what that means, throughout history, comedians, satirists, authors have delighted in our irrationality and they've made a lot of meal out of it, for want of a better word. It's provided numerous um, plays, movies, uh, comedy skits. And the question is, why don't we learn? Why don't we change? We have the intellect to create, to create almost anything we imagine. Why not at least an understanding of ourselves in terms of irrationality? Have you ever thought about why smart people just sometimes aren't? How much we are ruled by our emotions? What is really a personality dispute? How and why and where power is abused? Where do organisational politics come from? What's an ego? What's an ego defence? How the truth can and often is so wildly manipulated. How and why you kid yourself? How do we go along when we really don't want to? And then we rationalize as to why we did. How we feel forced into telling lies. 
why in some situations we just can't say what we want. What triggers, for example, road rage? Why do we react defensively as opposed to reasonably and we continue dialogue in a circular blame-defend loop? Or if you think about, I'll use an example here, if you were an advocate, a strong advocate of of climate change um, and an activist for climate change, would you read a book written by a climate denier? As an example, when I was lecturing, I actually discussed this with my students and I'd actually ask my students, I would say, would you read exactly the question I posed to you? Would you read a book by a climate denier? And I said to the students, how many of you believe in climate change? And people put their hands up. And then I would say, how many of you believe that humans contribute to climate change? Or humans are the main contributing factor to climate change? People keep their hand up. So I hold up this book written by a fellow called Ian Plymer, who is a, um, we'll call him a climate denier. He's an Emirates professor, um, and he's written a lot of books and spoken, etc., etc., written a lot of papers. And um, I say to these folks, would you read this book? No. This guy's a professor. Why wouldn't you read this book? Because he's talking rubbish. How do you know he's talking rubbish? Well, he must be. One person actually said, no, I wouldn't read the book because I don't want to be confused. So why is it then, and this is not the discussion I'm having now, I don't want to get into the whole climate change discussion or debate, it's not about that. It's about how we hold something strong, so strongly that we won't even entertain the thought of reading, uh, I guess, literature that challenges our beliefs, that challenges our thoughts. So that's, again part to do with our irrationality. And irrationality is more than, I guess, rationalising, I've said. It's about how we make decisions about the underlying hidden drivers of our thoughts or our feelings and behaviours. And in this series of podcasts, I'm going to talk firstly about irrationality, driven by anxiety by way of introduction, and from there I'll introduce a systems model and the dynamics within that system. So I'm going to talk about a whole process looking at what we call the psycho-social system and how it relates to the physical system. And then we'll examine how the dynamics in that system work. I'll be covering this from the perspective where people interact from relationships with, in a family unit, within a close intimate unit, communities, work organisations. We'll look at, uh, at politics. So we'll cover that wherever human beings interact we have this potential to be irrational. And many of these dynamics are beyond our conscious, and that's the important thing, that they, we, we're not really aware of how they're impacting on us. And they impact on our rational decision-making in ways that are not necessarily emotionally provoking. Uh, it just leads us to perhaps not the best decision. I've actually seen in um, part of my work, as I've done as a consultant, Project managers sabotage their own project. Senior managers losing hundreds of thousands of dollars but still covering their backsides, rationalising and denying their decisions when an admission might actually save the situation and their backsides. And if you studied in detail or looked or read about, say, the Challenger disaster, the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, Deepwater Horizon you'd find that in these three disasters, 
Two in the last 20 years, well, the Columbia's just a bit outside, the decisions that contributed to the disaster were based on flawed reasoning and consequently irrational decision-making. This, which could have been recognised before the event if the decision-makers had just been aware of these flaws and realised that their reasoning was flawed. And this is not to say that the people in those situations, the mission manager for the Columbia, for example, were silly people, irresponsible people, incompetent people. They were very smart people, but they just didn't have an awareness of how these dynamics were impacting on their decision-making. I'll give you a couple of examples of how we rationalise, probably from an emotional perspective, firstly. Imagine a situation where, for example, you're a project manager. Uh, You're young, inexperienced, just not quite confident, not quite really there, for want of a better word, and you're working on this project, you're not really sure of yourself. And then one Thursday afternoon, you submit a project report to the project director, and you're not really happy with it. You had a lot on, but you're not really happy with the report. And then Friday morning, you come into work, you're sitting at your desk, the project director comes past greet them, good morning, they walk straight past and ignore you. What's the first thing you do? Depends on, I guess, our level of confidence, whether we go into almost a, not a panic mode initially, but a feeling of, oh, they read my report, they didn't like my report, and then we catastrophize. Oh, God, what if I lose my job? So that starts, that thinking starts. You start to make assumptions about why they didn't say hello to you. Imagine then the end of the day and the project director's um, assistant comes to your desk and says, oh, look, the project director wants to meet with you first thing Monday morning to have a discussion about your report. Oh, my God. Suddenly then this anxiety starts to build a little bit more. And we go through a process where, imagine over the, the weekend, you're allowing this to build up in your mind you catastrophize, and that catastrophization comes around. Oh, I'm going to lose my job. I was going to get married, and now I won't be able to get married. Uh, I might lose my car. All these sorts of things that people allow to pop into their mind. So let me show you here what happens in that situation. So let's imagine that we have, in this case, a threat to our self-esteem. Any threat, really. We become aroused So if we have any other threat, we have an immediate arousal. And then depending on our level of confidence, we have an excitement, which is an arousal that enables a response as opposed to a reaction. Or we have an anxiety, which is an arousal that feels unpleasant, and it facilitates a reaction. So the difference between a reaction and a response is that a reaction is more of uh, oh my God, I've, I've got to do something. So it's your flight fo- fight type reaction. A response is, well, I'll manage this. And a lot of you might be uh, listening to me now saying, well, no, I wouldn't have got all upset about this. I wouldn't have got worried about that. I would be able to deal with it. Again, that depends on your level of confidence. So if we have that excitement, we move then to problem solving. Okay, so we solve the problem. So we don't build up all these anxieties. Okay, we take the meeting Monday morning. We know it'll be fine. We know we might get some criticism. We might get uh, those uh, responses. 
but that's going to be okay. We can manage it. On the other hand, the anxiety solving becomes the fight flight. Do I run away or do I prepare myself? Do I defend and say, no, it wasn't my fault. You didn't have these resources available for me. That's why I couldn't do this. That's why I couldn't do that. So we're, we're preparing to fight, which is quite, in many cases, irrational. So imagine then on it's Sunday night, you've gone to bed, you're not feeling very well. Um, you're really concerned about this. You wake up Monday morning about three o'clock. Three o'clock's the magic hour if you're stressed. If you're waking up at three o'clock, you're stressed. And you start running this, you can't sleep. You get up, have a drink of water, come back to bed, you can't sleep. And four o'clock, you still haven't slept. Five o'clock in the morning, you still haven't slept. Six o'clock, you're feeling pretty terrible. You've built this up in your mind now so much, it is a major catastrophe. And you go and drag yourself off to the shower, and oh my God, this is, this is terrible. Oh, I could get a headache. And you think, headache? I think I'd get a migraine headache. So you ring your assistant and say, look, I had a terrible night sleeping. I don't think I could take the meeting this morning. Can you take the meeting with the project director? You've been over this. Um, you know the report. They want to discuss the project report. Can you take the meeting? So you trot off to the doctor and the doctor says, yes, you've got a migraine headache or we better give you some tablets in case you get a migraine headache. And because we have this fear of seeming irrational, we rationalise. Well, I did have a bad night and I couldn't take the meeting. If I had have taken the meeting, it wouldn't have been good anyway. It was the best thing for me to do. And I really had to say I had a headache because I think I was getting a headache. I'm pretty sure I was getting a headache. So we're doing this whole rationalisation process. And then what we do is deny the rationalisation. No, really, I couldn't have taken the meeting. I, it was the smartest thing for me to do was to actually uh, not take the meeting. And it was smart for me to say I was getting a, a migraine headache. So then we deny the rationalisation and then we rationalise the denial of the rationalisation. That whole example... And by the way, imagine the person goes to work and their assistant comes up and says, oh, should have been at that meeting. Project director was just so wrapped in your report. Uh, how many times did that happen? I might have over-dramatised that little example a little bit, but I don't know that it doesn't reach. Well, I do know that it does reach for certain individuals that level of extreme anxiety. It does reach that level. And we build that stuff up in our minds and then we do rationalise where it, um, I guess, has been, for want of a better word. I'm going to give you another example. And if you can imagine, and I've shown, for those of you watching, um, a slide where I've got a, a balance, like a seesaw, and on either end there's two weights on a beam. Now, that beam is totally balanced. And I'm going to talk about... How, when we have a difference between what we say we do and what we do, how we rationalise the imbalance that's created. So in this balance, what I've uh, put here is our theory espoused, which is what we say we do as opposed to our theory in use. So on one end of the balance is what we say, on the other is, the, is what we do. And the balancing point is our governing value. What's our governing value that's driving us to act right at this minute? So imagine um, I'm a lecturer at university. 
And I say to my students, I say to my colleagues, and I say to everyone, the most important thing for me is student learning. I value my students' learning. That's what I want to see. I love it when students learn. The way I teach, what I do, I'm quite comfortable that these are working. Then in one lecture, a student asked me a question that I think, ooh, I don't know the answer to that. So I immediately make up an answer. And I don't tell the truth. I don't give the student the true answer. I make one up. But the student won't know the difference anyway, so it doesn't matter. Suddenly, my balance is out of kilter. My theory espoused is out of whack, for want of a better word, with my theory in use. So what do I have to do? I have to balance it because it's, it's, it's part of us that we need to balance what we say we do with what we do somehow. The governing value that I'm working on right now is to protect my ego. Okay? I probably mightn't admit that. I might go round in circles, and this is the rationalisation, because I have to build this up to rationalise it. So what do I say? I say, well, I had to do that. I had to tell a lie because my value is student learning, so I couldn't let them see me as incompetent. I couldn't let the students doubt me. They have to see me as confident. They have to see me as competent. So I had to give an answer. I couldn't say I didn't know. If I said I didn't know, my students would doubt me. Therefore, I wouldn't be able to deliver what I need to deliver and be competent. So what I've basically done is changed my value from student learning to protect my ego. And generally, I think a pair of protect your ego will probably beat four aces of anything most times. And if we look at that from a whole variety of perspectives, when I guess we, we rationalise in situations weight loss programs, and many people will say, many dietitians will say, most of your weight loss is about psychology. How we rationalise when we go and have a great big meal of ice cream when we're on a diet. Oh, it's okay, it'll be right, it won't matter. And I suppose a most disturbing, probably, example is in domestic violence situations where people often stay in violent relationships and unfortunately, sadly rationalise why they do. This isn't happening to me in the early stages. This isn't happening to me. My friends are wrong. I know he loves me. He promised to change. Perhaps it's my fault. If I don't make him angry, I'll be okay. And I'm not meaning here to trivialise the whole notion of what domestic violence is about. And I'm not here to demean folks who are in those situations. What I'm saying is this is part of the human condition. It's part of being human. Rationalisation is. And I'm not blaming or saying those folks anything but human beings who are experiencing situations that are stressful for them and how they make sense of that situation in their minds. So it becomes a very, a very difficult thing. And rationalisation is how we work it through. I wanted to introduce to you a quote now that came to me, I guess, many years ago. And I'll read it out to you. For several decades now, social scientists have been urging us to confront a sad paradox in our collective evolution. On the one hand, we possess the technical competence, physical resources and intellectual capacity to satisfy all the basic needs of mankind. On the other hand, 
we seem to lack the essential ability to work together effectively to solve critical problems. This was written by um, Lasso and Lafazo, a couple of researchers, in 1989, some 30-odd years ago. That echoes what Mark Twain said 150-odd years ago. Probably echoes what Plato and other philosophers have said way before that. And probably an example that I think about how we are so technologically advanced, yet so poorly advanced in our social psychological development is if we look at social media and computer technology. And some, I guess, uh, serious implications of that, if we look at social media, it makes people feel lonely. It increases jealousy. We develop a resentment towards peers, online bullying. And the online bullying, it provides a safe, almost, venue for vicious criticism, faceless, nameless critic. And people are very harsh, even though we live in this society where we're trying to say how we care for one another, people are very harsh online. It can be addictive. It encourages political participation. Everyone has an opinion. And I was reading a, a, a short article by um, Frank McCourt, who wrote Angela's Ashes, the number one best-selling uh, novel. And um, he said, when I was a school teacher, nobody asked my opinion about anything. But when I became a number one best-selling author, people asked my opinion about stuff I know nothing about. Uh, and if you look at that, there's so many people who have opinions who really and echo them through social media where they're not qualified to qualified to have an opinion, but not to make that opinion a fact. Making people less imaginative. It decreases intimacy. Send a text to end a relationship. It's easier. It teaches people to hold grudges. I actually saw recently, and this is not so much on social media, where there's an app you can buy where if you, if you want to make a statement, if you want to tell your project team about a hard project, you actually say, oh, I've got to say this. So it tells you what to say and gives you the text. So you pump it in and your text comes out. Imagine a future where people are actually sitting down at dinner and, and instead of saying, hi, how are you? Saying, I want to say hello to this person next to me. What do I say? And then the person responds. I mean, it's probably crazy even thinking about that, but is it? It teaches us to avoid problems. I guess it allows us to humiliate without reproach if someone has a different political view or makes an innocent comment or asks an innocent question. It's a platform for extremism and radicalism. And it fosters, I guess, identity politics. And the difficulty, and I won't go into that particularly right now, but identity politics unites groups to the extent where it establishes boundaries, and we'll talk about that in a, in a future podcast, and the danger of that. And it divides in that people are afraid to speak their views because they're scared they're going to get criticised. And in line with our development, I often think of a story that a, a lecturer told me when I was very first at university. He told me about, imagine if you were a, um, from Venus, a Venusian visiting Earth. And you looked like an earthen, an earth person. And you came down and you went to a football game. And imagine you're watching a football game and you see people dressed in red and people dressed in blue and they're on either ends of a field. And you see them either kicking, passing, throwing a football into a net over a goalpost or diving across a line to put the ball down. And you're watching this. And you watch when the blue team kick the ball or over the line or through the goalpost or into the net, 
There's people in the crowd that are wearing blue. They've got blue scarves, blue beanies, blue jumpers, and they all jump up and cheer. And you notice also when the red team do the same thing. There's people in the crowds wearing red. They all jump up and cheer. And you've got a blue outfit, and you're watching the game, and you're looking at it intently, and the blue team suddenly kick the ball into the net. You jump up and cheer, but you're sitting in amongst a whole group of red people dressed in red. How long do you think you live? Now, why is that? And it's interesting that the rituals, tribalism, the symbols that play out in sport play out in our social lives. And it's often the case where you meet someone and find that they don't barrack for the team you barrack for, you suddenly have a different opinion of them. Why is that? What causes this group tension that we have? And it is, and it's what my uh, lecturer said, it's about anthropology and it's about the fact that we are a small tribe species. And while we have developed intellectually, we haven't developed, uh, as I've mentioned before. And I subscribe to that thought. It's interesting when you look at these, um, in one of my experiences, this group notion, I was actually called in to resolve a dispute in a uh, daycare centre many years ago. So part of what I had to do was go through and unpick, for want of a better word, this dispute where it started. It was between two groups, and it was very definite the two groups um, weren't communicating effectively with other, each other, weren't supporting each other, etc., etc. And when I unpicked it, what it was was it was the smokers versus the non-smokers. Okay, where did that come from? The dispute started with an individual who was a non-smoker and an individual who was a smoker. They had a difference, might call it a personality clash, a dispute. And then when the smokers went outside, they'd get together and this one person would, to protect themselves, try and get, I guess, allies with their group. The same thing happened with the people inside, the non-smokers, that one person tried to get allies within their group. They built their allies so strongly that the two groups then became two tribes within the organisation. And fortunately, we were able to, as I said, unpick it satisfactorily that we could rebuild it again. So that example demonstrates how strong this feeling is. And it's like, if, if you could imagine, have you ever had a situation at work or anywhere where you have a, oh, in your friend circle, in a community, you have a difference of opinion, you have a minor spat, a dispute with another individual, and after the spat, you go and you talk to somebody else. And you might say, how do you get on with Ruby? Ruby's the person you've just had the spat with. I think she's fine. I think she's lovely. Why do you ask? Oh, just, just wondering. Nothing in particular. Go to the next person. How do you get on with Ruby? Ruby's great. Do you find she works well? Works well with you? Absolutely. Why do you ask? No, I don't. Just wondering. So you go to the next person. How do you get on with Ruby? I find her very difficult to deal with. Can we have a coffee sometime? I don't know whether you do that. Some people do. And that's the, the way we need to protect ourselves when we have these sorts of circumstances and we build something out of, probably I won't say nothing, but out of something that doesn't need to be built into something much bigger. So that's the whole notion of how this tribalism works. So I guess in the next podcast, I'm going to talk about the systems model and then I'm going to build and talk about how these dynamics interact what I want to be able to do too is talk about, well, what can we do? What can we do to overcome these 
things that are, I, I guess, in us. That, that are there in this psychosocial system and how we can we manage it better. It doesn't mean we make psychologists out of everybody. It doesn't mean that. It just means we create an awareness for how we can deal with it better. So that's what I'm going to be doing in this, in this next podcast. I'd really like if you had any comments or had any questions about what I've talked about today, about what I'm going to talk about, you can actually contact me and I'll try to get back to you and, and respond. Um, to your questions. So thanks very much for being with me and I'm really looking forward to seeing you in the next podcast. Good day.